0: And if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, and this evening we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7, so if you have a church Bible, that is page 1170, large print Bible 1810, Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So, also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word. And this morning, or this evening rather, we're going to be considering how we are no longer slaves, but sons. No longer slaves, uh, but sons. Um, I've just uh, picked this book up from uh, the church uh, library, uh, and the book is called Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and it is a book that I would highly recommend for every Christian to read. It's a brilliant book, Uh, and in the book, uh, Packer explores uh, God's character as revealed in the Bible and how we, as God's people, are to respond to that character that the Scripture reveals. It's an excellent book, and if any of you want to borrow it, it's in our church library, because although we don't have many libraries around today, you can go to a library and borrow a book and read it and bring it back. So you can borrow this book, and if you do so and read it, I guarantee you'll be blessed uh, by what is in this book. But I show that book because I want to begin this sermon by quoting Something that Packer says in this book, because it's wonderful in helping us understand where Paul takes us in Galatians chapter 4. So let me read um, what Packer says to you, um, or I might have to read it to you because I haven't put the slide up, I thought I had, so you have to just listen to what I'm saying. Uh, so Packer says this, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion If you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers, And his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. End quote. And this evening, if we can grasp this truth, this evening, the doctrine that we are adopted by God and he is our father, then it revolutionizes our lives. It helps us to live as Christians ought to live. It gives us comfort and joy and cause for much celebration. And for me, uh, just studying this passage has been so encouraging. It is such a joy to consider God as our Father, that we are adopted into his family. And I hope that the joy that I've uh, just sensed and felt as I've been studying this passage, comes across tonight and the the Holy Spirit puts that joy in your hearts that we can really just be rejoicing and celebrating this absolutely glorious truth that God is our Father, that you and I are sons and heirs of God. It's glorious and wonderful. So I hope you can grasp that. If you're a Christian, this is cause for just great rejoicing. But if you're not a Christian, I hope that you'll see that there is nothing greater in life, nothing so joyous, nothing so wonderful as being a child of God. And in in, in grasping that, it's my prayer that you return to him in repentance and faith and join this family of faith as you follow Jesus Christ. So the key point of Galatians 4 verses 1 to 7 is this. Christians, you are no longer slaves but sons and heirs of God, and he is your Father. Let me say that again. Christians, you are no longer slaves, but sons and heirs of God, and he is our Father. And that really is the culmination of what Paul has been showing us from the beginning of chapter 3 of Galatians. He's been showing us that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. And from verse 19, Paul has been showing us that why faith in Jesus Christ is better than the works of the law. He's shown us last week that the, the, the law was a guardian until Christ came with something better. That is the Holy Spirit. And last week we saw how the law separated peoples, but faith in Jesus brings us together as children of God in one united family. So what we had in the Old Testament was wonderful. The law was, was good and is good, but what we have as New Testament people is even better. It is far superior. And this week, we come, if you like, to the summit. We've been kind of climbing up saying, isn't God wonderful? Isn't it amazing that he's, he's led us here? And we've kind of looked around the surroundings of what God has done, and it's looked amazing. But here, as we look at this adoption, we come to the summit, and we say, wow, this is amazing. And the way Paul explains this is by showing us the gospel so that we won't go back to slavery, but we will be sons and heirs of of God, living our Christian lives in the knowledge of him as our Father. And he does this in three stages. He shows us what we were, which was slaves. He shows us what has happened, which is the plan of adoption. And then finally, he shows us what we are now, which is sons of God. So first of all, Paul shows us what we were. So we look at the position of slaves. Notice in verse 1, Paul begins with the words, What I am saying is that... So he's summing up now his argument about faith in Jesus being better than the Old Testament law. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Now in Roman law, an heir did not inherit until the time set by the father who was the head of the estate. Now that may be when the father was still alive, he may give his inheritance to his child. Uh, an example of that is the prodigal son. He was given the inheritance while the father was still alive. It may be after the father has died, and the son might have to wait even after the father died until he reached a certain age before he could inherit Uh, Some of you may have that in your will. If you've got children, you may not want them to have your whole estate when they're of a certain age. You might think, well, I want to wait till they're a little bit older before they squander everything or whatever it might be in your thoughts. Uh, You may in your will say, my child can inherit when they reach 21 or 25 or uh, whatever age you might think your child can cope. And if that is the case, in your will there will be trustees or executors who will look after your estate until the time comes when the children can inherit. Now in the Roman law, the guardians and trustees took on the role of controlling the property and finances and and caring for the heir. By the way, the guardian in this verse is a different Greek word to the one in chapter 3, verse 23 and 25. Here, guardian means more of an estate manager rather than a a governor of the children. But the point is that the guardians and trustees manage the estate and they have a measure of control over the heir as well. And in that sense, the heir is, is like a slave. He can't come and go as he pleases. He has no control over any of the assets of the estate and he's under rules and has no autonomy at all. Until the time... That has been set by the father. Until that time comes, the heir has no power at all. The heir eventually would come of age. And in that sense, the father's in control. The father sets the time. It's his plan. It's his initiative. Does that make sense? That's, what, that's the illustration Paul's using. So to summarize, we have a, a son who is like a slave because he is subject to guardians and trustees, until the father changes his circumstances and he can inherit. And Paul uses that to illustrate the point he makes in verse 3. He says, so also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So in the same way then, before Jesus came, all people were like the underage son, like slaves until the father changes their circumstances in his set time. All Christians are underage before they put their faith in Jesus, before they are Christians. And being underage here meant we were slaves under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Well, what does that mean? What are we slaves under? What are these spiritual forces? Well, Paul, in using this phrase, expands the problem of being slaves beyond merely just following the Jewish law. He says here in these words, All people, whatever you're following, are enslaved to these kinds of forces. And I think there are three lines of thought behind Paul's words here. First of all, these forces speak of legal codes that people follow. Now, that could be the Jewish law, or it could be uh, pagan religions that Gentiles follow. It could be any form of rules-based religion or works-based righteousness that people follow. You are enslaved to a spiritual force of this world if you think I could be made right with God if I do this. But also Paul calls them spiritual forces of the world which indicates there is an evil force at work in making people follow these ways. This includes trying to use God's law as a means to be justified rather than putting faith in Jesus. But there is an evil work undergirding the forces that turn people away from Christ, and it enslaves. But thirdly, you could look at these elemental forces also as worldviews or ways of thinking. The world that we grow up in shapes how we think, and how we think shapes how we act. And so we can look at uh, worldviews that we have, and they become our primary identities, the things that we we live by. So basically, you could call these kind of worldviews isms. Does that make sense? So uh, capitalism or communism or transgenderism or atheism or a hundred other isms, anything in a sense that ends in an ism, is an elemental spiritual force of this world. If that's what you're following and it's not Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, all of us, every single one, are slaves to these spiritual forces. So here's some examples. We can be slaves to laws or rules that we think can make us right with God. We've mentioned that already, haven't we? We can be slaves to our desires. Now, we think it's freedom to be able to do whatever you want, but actually it's not freedom at all because we're slaves to our desires, and our desires are usually wrong. Money can be a slave master, can't it? That that pursuit can be hard slave driving, can't it? We can be slaves to a dream of, of what life ought to be which we never can quite get to. That's a slavery, isn't it? Even the aim of being free from boundaries is a form of slavery. Um, You ask Paula about this if you want. She can tell you when she was a teenager, her mum died, and she had to move in with her two brothers. And her brothers were teenagers too. The three of them lived together, and there were no rules or boundaries at all. Now for you teenagers, you might think that sounds like my dream. But ask Paula, that dream is a nightmare. And when she was adopted and moved in with her family, who is now her mum and dad, and she had rules and boundaries, she will tell you that was freedom. She was more free in the confines and boundaries of a family than she was when she could do whatever she liked. That is just another form of slavery. The point Paul is making is that all of us were, if we are Christians, and are now, if you are not a Christian, slaves to spiritual forces. And you can think back, if you're a believer, to things that you were doing, or even for some of you, things that you still are doing, that make you slaves to those forces, And those forces we'll see next week in verse 9 are described as weak and miserable. And don't we know it really? Those forces that we think will make us happy are miserable and weak. They don't lead to life. They lead to death. They drive you hard. They're never satisfied. And under them, every one of us are slaves. And even if they give you some measure of satisfaction for some time, even if you think they satisfy for the whole whole of your life, they lead to death and hell. It's miserable. And that's the position we are in outside of Christ, the position of slaves. That's what the Galatians are being told by the false teachers they need to go back to. And we're often told the same thing by the enemy, aren't we? Go back and do this. Just follow your desires. Be who you want to be. Or we can fall out over isms that we allow to trump our allegiance to Christ, whether that be a a political view or whatever. And we can think that going back is better, but it's never better. It's always going to end up miserable. And it's from slavery that we've been rescued. God had a plan. And the plan is glorious. In verses 4 and 5, we see the plan of adoption. So we were slaves to these forces. It is miserable. And verse 4 begins with, but there's a change of position. And the change of position comes from the initiative of the Father, when the set time had fully come. So you remember that illustration of the will, where you're underage until the Father gives you the inheritance? Well, now the time has come. The set time had fully come. We don't know, by the way, why it was the time God had set it. We're not told why Jesus came when he did come, which is told that he did. But the set time was so significant to humanity that even now our calendar is based on this set time the coming of Jesus. We live. Before Christ or after Christ. And it's amusing that people want to change the name to before common era and after common era. They can change the name. They can't change the date. It's based on when Jesus came, isn't it? And so at the set time, when the Father decided, he set his plan in motion. Look at what he's done. First of all, God, we read there in verse 4, God sent his son. God the Father is the initiator of this plan, and he sent his son. To be sent is to be sent with a purpose, sent on a mission. And the phrase his son speaks of the divinity of Jesus. He is God, son of the Father, of the same essence. Jesus is God, God the Son. So God sent his son. He sent his son, one of himself. God came among us. That's first. Second, born of a woman. Jesus is God's son, fully divine. Here we see he was fully human. To be born of a woman here means he was human just like us. Every human is born of a woman. Now, that may be a radical statement today, but only biological women can give birth. His conception was supernatural, but his birth was completely normal. And this means he experienced what it is to be human. It means he can be our representative when he dies in our place on the cross. So God sent his son, born of a woman, thirdly, born under the law. He was subject to the Jewish law specifically, and the fact that he followed it perfectly means that this displayed his righteousness. Unlike every other human that's ever existed, Jesus Christ never sinned. He is completely righteous, and so as our human representative, he is able to exchange places with us and die in our place on the cross. And as we saw in chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus, in exchanging places with us, bore the curse of the law, thus, he fulfilled and experienced all of it. He died for us in our place. So, Jesus Christ is fully God, he is fully human, and he is fully righteous. He is all that is required to redeem us from slavery to those evil forces of this world by dying in our place for our sins. And that's what Paul means when he says at the beginning of verse 5, to redeem those under the law. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Redemption speaks of a purchase. In ancient times, a slave... Was brought back or redeemed at a cost. And the cost for our freedom from these forces was the death of the Son of God who died in our place to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. That was the cost. It was the cost of the Father sending his one and only Son to die in our place. But the gospel is even more than that because the next part of verse 5 gives us the reason why God redeemed us. Why did God send his son? Why did God go through all that? Why did Jesus suffer all that agony in the garden and on the cross? Why? Notice what Paul says. That we might receive adoption to sonship. Why did God redeem us? He redeemed us Because he wanted to adopt us. Isn't that astonishing? He redeemed us because he wanted to adopt us. Now it's helpful, I think, for our understanding here to understand the nature of adoption in the Roman world. In the Roman world, the father of the household would be responsible for choosing, usually a son, to adopt. Often, adults would be adopted. So this isn't, um, when you think of adoption, you think of children. But in the Roman times, adults would be adopted too. Sometimes being redeemed from slavery. Uh, Most interestingly, Roman emperors used adoption to continue the line of succession with people they wanted to succeed them. So the first Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, he adopted Octavian also known as Caesar Augustus, who issued the decree. And just before Paul wrote this letter, Claudius adopted Nero. So they adopted those men, and they they weren't little children, in order that they would become their successors, their legal heirs. And the key to understanding the adoption theme is to understand that the adopted son would be the legal heir to the estate. He is a full member of the family just as much as the natural-born children. And in that sense, adoption is still the same today. I mentioned earlier Paula was adopted. She is every bit as much a daughter of her parents as her sisters who are blood-related to her parents. There There is no difference in that relationship. They both inherit They both have the same blessings and benefits of being part of that family. And so, what Paul is saying here is that God the Father has chosen us to be his sons. He's picked us out and he's paid for us with the death of his son to make us full heirs of his estate. Isn't that amazing? that he's done that for us. And it's vital for our understanding of the gospel and how we live it out to realize those two aspects of our salvation that's outlined here. We are redeemed at great cost, but we've not been left on our own. We've been adopted. God didn't die for your sins because He had his arm twisted into doing so. He planned to adopt you into his family, knowing what you'll be like. You are a chosen son and heir of the holy God of the universe. You are a child of God, chosen, loved, welcomed, with the rights of sonship. Isn't that marvelous? Uh, This this morning, uh, Tim uh, pointed out that Jesus told the disciples that they'd be thrown out of the synagogue. This means that they'd be rejected and exiled by their own people. But here we see another side, don't we? That we're not thrown by God into nowhere. We have an actual family, real brothers and sisters with a wonderful Father in heaven. You are part of an amazing family with an amazing heavenly Father. Now for some some of us, The idea of a father is, is hard. We may not have had good experiences. For some, we've been rejected by family. Let us grasp the wonder of this truth. He's a wonderful father. Everything a bad father is not, our father is, and more than you can ever realize. And everything that a family should be, God's people are for us. But there's more. I mean, we could stop there and and celebrate, couldn't we? But there's more. Because now that the adoption's gone through, we are now beginning to possess that inheritance. And that means we have what verses six and seven show us, which is the privilege of sonship. So we've seen what we were slaves. We've seen what has happened, God's plan of adoption, and so now let's, let's gaze in wonderment at the privilege we have as adopted children of God. And that's the point beginning at verse 6 where Paul starts with, because you are his sons. So we've been welcomed into this family, and then our father kind of, he puts his arm around us and he says, now, I've adopted you, let me, let me show you what it's like to be in this family. Now, here we see the privilege of being sons. We have, first of all, the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse six God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So, because you're His sons, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Notice here how we see the same language as verse four of sending. In verse four, God sent His Son. Here, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son. Again, God the Father is the initiator and the spirit is sent. The spirit has a mission. The mission of the son was to redeem us from slavery, his purpose was to change our status from slaves to sons. The mission of the spirit is different, though. The mission of the spirit is to enable us to experience the status. The Son has provided for us. That's why the Spirit of His Son is sent into our hearts. It's not sent just into our heads so we can think about Him. It's sent into our hearts so we can experience Him. We've seen recently from John 14, the Spirit is God and comes to live in us. Our hearts Speak of our deepest being, our very selves. God comes to live in us so we can experience life as a child of God. His presence in us assures us we really are His children. How does it do that? Well, the end of verse 6 tells us, The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, the phrase, Abba, Father, is one that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me show you the verse again from Mark 14. There Jesus calls out, Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It was the name Jesus gave to his father. And here's the wonder. Since we're adopted by the same father, it's the name that we use as well. The name is one of intimacy. It is a family name, a a special name. For God, as our Father, is a name that, that no one else would use of God. Many, All other um, false gods, okay, all other false gods, they're distant and far away. We have a Father, an intimate Father. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, it means dad or daddy, and they mean well, but it's not really what, what, what's meaning here. It's not a cry of infancy, but intimacy, you see? It's better really to use the name the Bible uses and Jesus gave us, Abba Father, or our Father who is in heaven. The Spirit in our hearts assures us that God really is our Father. And we really do have that relationship. And then the Spirit gives us voice to to call out to him, which we do when we pray. When Jesus was in his deepest distress, he turned to Abba Father. It's where he he naturally went when he was in distress. And the same is true for us. So how does the Spirit do this? Well, here's a a few thoughts. Uh, First of all, the Spirit enlightens us. To the truth of Scripture. So we can read a passage like this and understand the implications and know what it is to be an adopted Son of God. We can have that joy and celebration because we've grasped it. And so the Spirit enlightens us. Uh, secondly, the, the Holy Spirit helps us to obey the commandments, which is a sign, as we've seen in John's Gospel, that we are genuinely His children. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit directs us in our distress as Jesus was directed in his, to cry out to his Father, we do the same. Uh, the word for, for call out is a, a loud cry, usually in distress. It's like a child who, who calls for his or her parents when they are hurt. Isn't it true when a child gets injured, they call out for their mother or father? It's the place they naturally go. And now as God's people, the Spirit directs us so that naturally we go to our Father. And linked to this, we are directed to pray more generally and and more spontaneously. We don't prepare speeches for our parents at home. Well, sometimes we might if we really want something from them. We think, I've got to think this through. But but normally, we we don't prepare to talk to them. We, We have a relationship with them. We just talk to them as members of the family. So, too, with our Father. The Spirit stirs our hearts to pray. And the Spirit gives us that, that inner reassurance at times, that the peace that passes understanding, the unspeakable joy. Now, we don't always experience this, I grant you for sure. But there are times when we do, aren't there, where, the, where we just have that, that, that peace and that joy. And we should thank God that the Spirit gives us that. And we should pray for more of it. But most wonderfully, really, what this verse shows us is how loved we are. We've been adopted by a holy God, and we can call him Abba Father. Abba Father. Well, Paul summarizes in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an Heir. The Galatians, they were being told to go back to their old ways of slavery. Now Paul is going to tell them, and does tell them, "Don't do that." But he shows them, in telling them, "Don't do that," a wonderful reason not to go back. He shows them something far more glorious. They're no longer slaves. they're sons. The same Greek word that's translated here as child is the same as used earlier for sons. The, the, the son and heir, the, that sonship that, that the Roman law was, was, was illustrating. That is what we are. We are sons of God, heirs of all of the Father's house. All of us as Christians are heirs. We've, we've received the Holy Spirit. And so right now, we can experience this amazing fatherhood of God. We are led by the Spirit to live the lives we were made for in our Father's house. And we have all this now, all this joy, all this, this glory, all this wonder, all this amazing truth that we're children of God. And then we have heaven too. Isn't it amazing? Can you see how Packer is right? That this truth or thought prompts and controls our worship and prayers and whole outlook on our life in this world? It's transformative, isn't it, if we understand? We're no longer slaves to the things of this present evil age. Why even consider going back there when you live in the Father's house as sons and heirs? Brothers and sisters, isn't this just the peak? Nothing is better than this. This is a truth to savour and a truth to celebrate, isn't it? That we are sons of God. Well, let's just take a moment of of quiet just for a minute, just to think on what we've been hearing. And then after uh, just a time of quiet, uh, we're going to pray together as a family uh, the Lord's prayer that he taught us, beginning our Father And then after we're going to sing and celebrate these truths together. So let's just have a moment of quiet as we think on these truths. Why don't we stand together, and we can pray the prayer our Lord uh, taught us to pray. Uh, after we've uh, prayed, we're going to sing a song that I don't think I've ever sung, uh, but the tune you'll know, because the tune's to Immortal and Invisible, uh, but the reason I've picked this song, hopefully you'll see as we sing it, uh, the words are basically uh, preaching my sermon again, so uh, it'd be good to, uh, to, to internalize uh, what we've been hearing by singing. Uh, so we're going to sing that song together, uh, and then we'll celebrate by, uh, by continuing to sing, basically. So let's stand together uh, and uh, pray uh, together the prayer our Lord taught us, and then uh, we, will, we will sing. So let me just wait a moment just for our musicians to get in, in place. Okay, let's, let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Hallelujah. Amen.